Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Paul's uh, admonitions to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, And so we are going to look at what Paul has taught the early church and reminds us today about how to live in this time between when Jesus has come and the time between that he will come again. Let's share in God's good word together. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It's coming. Thanksgiving lesson two weeks away, right around the corner. Are y'all just looking forward to it? So excited. Well, the thing is, we all have things, and we all have uh, times to be together as families, and, and we want to look at what God says about Thanksgiving. It's a part of the people of God from the very beginning of time, this thing of giving thanks to God for the things in our life. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can sort of have this Pollyanna view about it, like, oh, isn't it great? Oh, we ever get to go to say Thanksgiving? Well, no. Sometimes, uh, these, if, if, if you were to sit in my office, these are the weeks between now and the new year where I see more people who are completely freaked out about having to go see their parents or, or about their brother or their sister or the things that are unresolved. This is the hard time on people. They know it's supposed to be a time of fun and frivolity and pumpkin pie and all the rest, but... Yet there is this sort of dread and things left undone or left unsaid or not reconciled and it can be hard on people. And so tonight I want us to look specifically at what the scripture says to all of us that live in this in-between time. That we understand that Christ has come and we have joy in that, we have peace in that, we can have thanks in that, but we also know that it's not done. Things aren't perfect yet. Our world is still broken. And so Paul has some things to teach us about how do you live in the in-between time. How do you do this? How do you do it well? Well, journalist Janice Kaplan uh, says that giving thanks, giving praise, having gratitude in our hearts and in our lives... Uh, makes a big difference, and I think she's right. She, along with neuroscientists and cardiologists and psychologists uh, and educators, now know that there are direct effects of gratitude on our happiness level, um, on our romantic relationships, on health and brain function. Gratitude can reduce symptoms that exacerbate diseases, and in children and youth it can help develop self-awareness and community-mindedness and even boost academic performance. Now, here's the thing. We are fighting uphill uh, against sort of the evolutionary system, if you will. If you go all the way back to cavemen and women, right, we are hardwired to look for the negative, right? If you're a hunter-gatherer, you eat, you know, you watch your uh, your, one of your clan eat a, a poison berry and they die. You're like, don't do that. Remember that berry, right? We were focused on the negative. You see an animal about to eat you and you survive somehow, you're like, watch out for those animals. And we are hardwired to go negative, That's just our human nature. And so God, uh, in in his love and wisdom for us, is saying, look, we're going to have to overcome this. So if you take your sermon notes out, uh, I want to point something out to you. Psychologists have found out now that it takes three good emotions, three of them, to balance out a single bad one. Three good emotions to single out a bad one. And so there's, it means that we have to be thankful three times just to get back to even. 
And so we find this in lots of management teaching about celebrations, lifting our people up, because there will be a day that you always have to correct that person, but you don't want to go into that neutral. And you certainly don't want to go into that in a deficit. People need to be encouraged. People need to be thanked. People need to be appreciated. And, and as we give thanks, as we have gratitude, things begin to change. So it takes three good emotions to balance out even a single bad one as a way of introduction. That's just sort of the way we're hardwired. Secondly, then, thankfulness has been associated uh, with better grades for kids uh, and less depression in teenagers. Absolutely tested out to be true. And, and this was perhaps most shocking that they took blood tests from people, some who showed thankfulness and gratitude, others who did not. And what they found was that in blood analysis, it revealed that people of gratitude, it actually had an association with lower inflammation in the body. Isn't that crazy? Just lower lower inflammation, which led to quicker healing in many of the folks. So if all of this is true, then why aren't we more thankful? Why aren't we more thankful? And I think part of it is, is because... We realize, if we're thinking honestly, soberly, uh, that we still live in a broken world. That yes, Christ has come, and, and we are uh, amazed and thrilled, and we wonder at that, but we also live in this not yet time. Not yet time. And this is certainly uh, the case for the people who are living in Thessalonica. Now, you, you might say, well, where is Thessalonica? What does that have to do, and, and what does that have to do with us? That was a different time. Well, you can see here uh, in Greece, if you go up and to the right, there's Thessalonica, and, and Rome is going to be off to the left. And so what this, there was this movement here from basically here, and it would go here through Thessalonica, Apollonia, up here will be Philippi, and it'll go on to the east. And this was the major trading route for Rome, right along here, right along the sea, along the Aegean Sea. And so this was a place of great commerce, uh, of great wealth, uh, it was the expansion of Rome. Uh, and I would remind you that the people that traveled these roads, that, that Rome had taken over all of this area, uh, Paul was writing in roughly 50 uh, CE in the Common Era. Um, and, but Thessalonica had been around since 316 BCE. It was named after Alexander's half-sister. And the people that lived all through this region understood that whoever was the Roman emperor was God himself. And here's Paul writing into the followers of Jesus who say, no, Alexander or any whoever's leading Rome at this time is not God. Jesus is God. And they were in conflict with the people that lived around them in in very desperate ways. It was a very difficult time to be a Christian in a difficult area of the world. Even though there was a lot of wealth and trade, uh, they were really in conflict with the people there. And so Paul is writing to them to encourage them and, and to say, hang in there. Christ has come. Christ will come again. And we live in the in-between times. And so tonight I hope that uh, what Paul says to the early church in Thessalonica, he says to us, will help us live in the in-between times as well. And so in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 22, he says this, we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to, what's the word? Respect those who labor among you. Those who labor among you. So this is the thing. He's not talking about other Christians necessarily. He's talking about whoever's in the culture who's working beside them. We are to respect those who labor among you. Everybody around your cubicle, everybody on your floor, everybody in your business. We are to be people of respect. And it's our modeling of our behavior. It's our character. It's our love. It's our compassion. It's our respect for others that begins to change the world. That has other people looking at us and go, wow, there's something different about those people who follow Jesus. 
He says, so respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Uh, folks who might be um, above you or look overseeing you in the church as well. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And in all these cases, what are we to be? Patient. We're to be patient. Now, that's easier said than done. I get that. But it was true then. It's true now. It doesn't matter who you work for, where you work, what you do. There are always going to be people who are on your last nerve. It's just the way it is. And so we are to be patient with how many of them? All of them. Not just some of them. All of them. That's just the way it is. And so we'll, we'll learn that tonight. So when you go back to your work on Monday, you're going to be what? Patient. I have people go, wow, they're just so patient with me. It's just, I, I was supposed to have that done two days ago. And they're just so kind um, and firm, but patient and kind. They're helpful to me. It's wonderful. Is that what people say about you in your work? They say, oh, they're just so patient. We just, they make a big difference in my life. Yes, I'm not asking my staff if they think I'm patient. Um, but we all struggle with this at some level, don't we? So, so let's go on in the text. Then Paul says this. He says, see that none of you repays evil for what? For evil. That's the way of the world, right? Somebody dogs you, you dog them. That's, that's the way business works. Paul says, no, no, no. That's not the way we work. None of us repay evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to, again, all. There's that word, all. Notice that it doesn't say Christians. Notice that it doesn't say people in your denomination. Notice that it doesn't say people in your own country. It says what? To all. And then he says this, and this is where it gets really tough. Rejoice how often? Always. And we're going to pray all the time without ceasing. It's just going to be our lifestyle. It's not going to be something we go to church and do. It's going to be something where we're in relationship with God all the time. We're listening and we're responding to God in every place. At the stoplight, uh, at the Starbucks, at the drive-thru, at the McDonald's, in church, out of church. Pray without ceasing and give what, friends? Thanks. How often? In all circumstances. In all circumstances. Now, this, this is tricky. Because at this point, we, we just want to rewrite the Bible. We want to mark that through and say, well, we want to give thanks to God in some circumstances. Or in the good circumstances. Or maybe in most circumstances. But certainly, God doesn't mean in all circumstances. Yes, he does. Because it is in all circumstances that we begin to reframe that this isn't the only life there is. Now, if this were the only life there is, and afterwards we were worm food, then maybe it would need to be some or most. But that's not the case for us as Christians. For us, we can give thanks to God in all circumstances because we know God holds our future and God has an eternity in heaven. And this is not our final spot. So this is just a testing spot. This is a preparation spot. And so whether it's good today or horrible today, we know that the future is God's and we're going to get to live into that. So what we're going through today, whether it be good or bad, is simply temporary. So we ought not get too arrogant and we ought not get too low because this is not the end. And because of Jesus, because he's raised, because he's our Lord, then we can move on. We can live through this. So in all circumstances, we can live. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, to give thanks in all things. And then he says this, don't quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. Now, this is important. We're, we're not being silly. I mean, Jesus isn't asking us to check our brains at the door. What he's saying is, give thanks in all things and then test what's going on around you. To know what is good and to give thanks for that, and which is evil, and to stay away from that. So if it's good, if you've tested it, then hold fast to it. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. And if it's bad, abstain from it. Step away. So the, 
The condensed Cliff Notes version is this. Uh, if you were following along, always do what? Rejoice. Always. Always. Right? And so if you go to Thanksgiving and the food is horrible, then you rejoice in the hospitality, in the conversation, in the opportunity to be together as family. You don't have to mention the food. Right? You rejoice how often? Always. Right? Doesn't matter the circumstance. And you're going to pray how often? Constantly. So we always do what? We rejoice. We constantly pray. And in all circumstances, we give what? Thanks. In all of them. And this isn't a misprint. Paul didn't accidentally write this down. This is absolutely the way it's possible because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and in the resurrection. Absolutely possible. So we test everything we hold fast to which is good. And this includes letting go of every form of evil. All of it, friends. All of it. Even the little things that you don't think are all that bad. We let go of all of that because the future is the Lord's. So, the sermon title for tonight is How to Be Blank. And I know that you're adults. Uh, Most of us in the room are adults. It's an adult learning community. We're trying to learn how to follow Jesus. And so, look, the choice is yours. You can learn to be thankful or you can learn to be miserable. And the world would lead you to a life of misery. And, and so I just want to remind us that you actually do have a choice about this. Now, for me and my family, we're going to choose to be thankful. Uh, that's what we're going to do because it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more joyful. Uh, I, I, how about you? If you want to be around somebody, do you want to be around a miserable, sad sack, you know, bemoaner, like boo-hoo-hoo? And, and, you know, we have people in, like that in our life, don't we? You see them coming like, hey, how are you? And they're like, horrible every time. You're like, how can you be horrible every time I meet you? How's that possible? Like, didn't anything happen good for you? See, most of us are repelled by that, aren't we? That's not a winsome or lovely thing. Most of us would like to be around what? People who lift us up, are encouraging, are lively, have hope in their life. Not hopelessness or helplessness, but people of hope and help and good. So, point two is this. How to be miserable. Because you can be. So let's just look at how to be miserable. So, point two is this. How to be miserable. Well, first of all, if you really want to be miserable in your life, make sure that you base your mood on your circumstance. Guaranteed misery, right? So if your car doesn't start, bad day. Horrible day, non-recoverable, right? If you wake up, you know, after you had a big meal the night before and you're two pounds heavier than the day before, the whole day is shot. You are going to be have a very bad, fat day. Just horrible So be sure, if you want to be miserable, to base your mood each day, or even, why not, hour by hour. You know, something good happens, I'm going to be elated, and everybody goes, oh, yay, and then something bad happens, and you're in the dirt, and everybody's like, wow, did not see that coming, right? Nobody wants to be around that. So if you want to be miserable, base your mood on your circumstance. Secondly, then, make sure that all of your relationships are transactional, transactional that's your blank there so make sure that in business and in life and in your family you only do good to those who have done good to you and you do it to the exact same measure that they've done good to you so if you go to christmas and somebody gives you a ten dollar present and you got them a twenty dollar present be mad about it be very upset because you got gypped at christmas right because you went to dirty santa you brought a twenty dollar gift they got a ten dollar gift and the night is shot just be upset about it miserable you see how this works Right? Or maybe you're the other way around and you brought the $10 gift to everybody else, got 20, like, sweet, those suckers. You know, I got, I got them. And to wait till next year and you're not invited. And then you're miserable again. 
Right? You see how this works. So if you really want to be miserable, be transactional in your relationships. What can I get for what I give? Desperate misery comes out of that life. And then, this sort of is a, is a result of these things, if you're trying to be miserable, isolate yourself from friends and family and support systems. Uh, this week at our staff meeting, we, we basically said, what were some of the most miserable times of your life? And we, we really did this, and we went around the room, and we started talking about the miserable times of our life. And what we found, that in almost every case, we had been separated, either by our own action or the action of others, that we've been separated from those we love most. And it's just heartbreaking. Sometimes that was in college. Other times that was because of a move that we, wasn't up to us or we didn't feel like we had much of a choice about it. Um, it's just hard when we isolate ourselves from family and friends and support systems. Things that used to work don't work now. Uh, the places that we used to lean into are gone and we're just miserable. And, and then there are other times where you would think that we would be happy, but we allow fear, that's your next blank there, we allow fear of the future to steal the joy of today and the promise of tomorrow. We're just afraid all the time about something, about what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, what about the next day? Well, what about the next day after that? So we, we can never experience the joy of the present because we're always afraid of the future. Miserable folks do that. And then perhaps uh, you've done this like I have, and that is there, you had your heart really set on something or you really tried for something and, and, and you, you know that people watch you and so you do your best and then there was that one moment where you were, were rejected. Maybe it was the first girlfriend that you really liked and uh, you, know, you brought her flowers and she laughed at you. Or maybe it was that first project at work that you felt really good about and you knew was a slam dunk and they didn't receive it. Maybe it was that promotion that was supposed to be yours and they dismissed you or maybe they just dismissed you altogether out of your job. And, and if you want to be completely miserable, stay focused, don't let it go, don't forgive it, don't get over it. Don't move on. Don't try anything else. Wherever you failed, never do that again. That's a great plan to be absolutely miserable. Because by the time you get to be my age, you got like three things left. Right? Because you, you failed at so many things. If you never do those things again, you're not doing anything. But sitting at home with your remote, you know, watching TV alone, eat, getting fat, eating Cheetos. Right? That is not life. That's miserable. That is miserable. So the thing is, we don't want to be isolated. We don't want to have transactional relationships. We don't want to focus on the rejection and the pain of the past because that makes us miserable. Then the other thing that we can focus on, which happens a lot because the world tells you to do it, is to ask this question. What is going to happen to me? What will happen to me? And if you let your mind spin on what will happen to me, You know there's like 18,000 ways to die between here and home, right? I mean, seriously, trip, fall off the stage, right? choke on the cookie on your way out. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's miserable. If you focus on what will happen to me, what are all the possibilities of things that could happen to me? Ways to be miserable. Now, you don't have to do that. A lot of people do. A lot of people choose it. I don't get it, but they do. So point three is this. How to be thankful. How do you be thankful? Well, first of all, and this is where I think we get it wrong a lot of the time, is you start with being specific. Because this idea of, well, I'm just so grateful for my life, I'm just so thankful, well, boo-hoo-hoo. I mean, who cares? You know, I'm just a thankful person. If you can't say what you're thankful for, you're not really a thankful person, you're just faking it. 
Right? So be, you have to be specific. And the thing is, if you look at the people of God over time, they've always been super specific about what they gave thanks for. And that's why I love Holy Communion. Because Jesus came, and on the Passover night, he gave thanks to God. Because it was God who saved them from the people of Egypt. It's a very specific time in history where God came and saved them. And every year on the same night, they gave thanks. Very specific with their thanks. And Jesus models this for us. And so I want you to think about, what are you really thankful for tonight? Be specific with it. Just as they were with Passover, or they were with the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Booths, uh, or Hanukkah. All, all these feasts, and we're thankful for specific events of what God had done in concrete acts of history. It wasn't some ethereal spirituality like, oh, thank you in general. It wasn't like that. It was this thing right here, thank you for that. And here is the way that I'm going to show my thanks. Be specific. The other thing is that uh, for thousands of years, the people of God uh, have known that our life is governed by a life of worship. Thanks is governed by a life of worship. And so thousands of years earlier in the Psalms, uh, I want to show you how they would do it. I'm going to invite you to read the parts in gold. I'm going to be the, the liturgist, if you will, where, where I sort of encourage you to give thanks, and then you respond back to me. If we were in high church, uh, we would do this formally as a call to worship. It goes like this. I'll say the first part, you say the next part. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God, it is he that made us, and we are his, we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. You see how there's a call and response. Uh, the, the leader of the song of Psalms would say, make a joyful noise. Well, why do you do that? Because God is with us. We are his. We are the sheep of his pasture. And so I say, well, if that's the case, then enter his gates with thanksgiving, with praise, and, and give thanks to him and bless his name. And you're like, absolutely. Why? Because the Lord is good, specifically. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations, which includes us. Includes us. This is the way the people of God have worshipped for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's not something we're making up. It's not something that might work. This is the way the people of God have praised him for millennia. And we have the great opportunity and privilege and honor of doing it again tonight. Now here's the other thing. This worship isn't something you do only at church. This is both our whole life and specifically at the temple and the church. And the temple and the church. And so in Jesus' day, they would have a temple. And they would go to the temple. And they would, they would go and they would worship and they would come from all over Israel. Some days, that was a nine days journey. If Jesus, when he left up in Galilee, if he had to walk to Jerusalem, it was nine days. And he would have to stop on the Sabbath and rest and then go the rest of the way. It was a huge thing to go to the temple, yet he did it multiple times a year. They would go to the temple and they would worship there. Both there, but not just there, he would also worship at home and in their homes and out on the, uh, the grass and out in the fields and at the Sea of Galilee. Their whole life was one of worship. And, and see, this is grounded in what God has done in concrete acts of history. In the same way that Jesus was giving thanks for the Passover, we give thanks for the really beautiful markers of God's love and protection in our life. A number of years ago, we had a family, Andy and Kathy Meyer, who are part of our church. Uh, he's Air Force, and um, so they now live in Florida, uh, down along the coast on the beautiful white sands. That's where everybody goes, oh. And, and so he goes, and he does this, but part of that life is that he gets deployed. 
And, and imagine when, when Kathy was with us, uh, she had triplets. They lost one of those triplets. Then they had another little baby after that named Luke. And so imagine being a mom, basically a single mom for a season, month after month after month, with uh, Eli, the oldest, and then Drew and Jordan, the twins, and Luke. So four kids, little bitty kids, and you have that to do all on your own every day from getting the kids down, getting the kids up. Can you imagine this life over and over again? And they always want to know, where's dad? What's dad doing? What's dad doing? Can you imagine what it's like when he finally comes home? When he finally comes home? Well, it looks like this. I want to show it to you. That's what it looks like. There's Eli. There's Andy coming in. Little Luke and the gold hair. Kathy with her sign and friends videotaping it. This happened just a little bit ago. And now he's home, back stateside. Even passerbyers are like, yay! That's what thankfulness looks like. It's good for our hearts. It's good for our souls. So in the same way that isolation and separateness makes us miserable, coming together and reuniting makes us whole, makes us thankful, gives us joy. So I want to invite you tonight to join the tradition of setting specific times, that's your blank there, specific times to give thanks with concrete actions, including, certainly because we're Methodist, food, including food. And you say, well, why would you do that? That seems weird. Why do you always have to have food at everything you do? Because the people of God for thousands and thousands of years have been making cakes and making food to say thank you to God as a way to celebrate. That's what we do. That's what, how we're made. So if you go all the way back, you remember the Torah, which is the law, the things we're supposed to do. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Leviticus, it says this, in Leviticus 7, this is the ritual of the sacrifice of the offering of well-being, of thankfulness, that one may offer to the Lord. And if you offer it for thanksgiving, which is what we're talking about, you shall offer the thank offering with cake. Unleavened cake mixed with oil, unleavened wafers spread with oil, cakes of choice flour soaked in oil. With your thanksgiving sacrifice of well-being, you shall bring your offering with cakes of leavened bread. So if you really want to have a good celebration, make a cake. The Bible says so. No kidding. No kidding. So you're like, hey, make me a cake. God says it. Yes, absolutely. So we are cake eaters here at Acts 2. You can have your cake and eat it too and celebrate it. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. And not just that. Not just cakes and breads and wonderful things as thank offerings. But also, I mean, if you really want to get with it, Psalm 150 says this. It says, praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with a tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with clanging cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So if you really want to have a great Thanksgiving, get some cake. Turn up the music. And dance. That's what Thanksgiving looks like. I know some of you look weird when you dance. Get over it. Just enjoy yourselves. Have fun. Dance with your kids. Dance with grandma. Dance with your aunts and uncles. And they'll be like, what are you doing? My pastor said so. We're dancing tonight. Just dance. Have a good time. Dance and have food and eat cake. Because you see, friends, that thanks is not governed by circumstance. Say it with me. Thanks is not governed by circumstance. 
We have to understand this, friends. Thanks is not governed by circumstance. On the last night of Jesus' life, this Passover meal, he knew that he would be on the cross at nine the next morning. And you know what he does? Say it with me. He gives thanks. It's not about circumstance. It's about understanding who God is. And that he's always good and always for you, always loving, always powerful. And because this life is not the end, we can give thanks. You see, we are to move beyond the shallow, the visible, the surface, the superficial good or bad of the day to the real power and promise of eternity proven by the concrete acts of Jesus. The concrete acts of Jesus. It's well beyond simple circumstance. And friends, that's really where the first Thanksgiving comes from for our country. On December 21st, 1620, the voyaging Mayflower dropped anchor in Plymouth Bay with Captain Christopher Jones at the helm. And it had been a grueling voyage, one that we would never want to take. It took 120-ton capacity ship 66 days to make the perilous crossing. 66 days on a rickety ship, not something that any of us would want to do. And there had been disease on the ship and anxiety and childbirth. Can you imagine giving birth to a child amongst the waves of the ocean? There were 102 passengers on that ship. Without a motor, mind you. And furthermore, they arrived on the bleak New England shore during one of the most harsh winters in history. And that harsh winter claimed half of their number. Half of their number. 102 of them boarded. There were only 50 or so left by the end of the winter. However, when spring came and the captain of the Mayflower offered free passage... Free passage, friends. For anyone who desired to return, do you know how many people accepted to go back? Zero. Not a one. They were staying. They had set their gaze, they had fixed their eyes on something greater than they had left. And yes, their circumstances were harsh, but it was the fidelity of 41 men after that harsh winter who, while still aboard the Mayflower, they had signed the famous compact beginning with these words, In ye name of God, Amen. And it was beginning to take on meaning as they were living into this new future that the Lord had for them and for us, thank God. These chivalrous souls had dedicated themselves to the total cause of freedom, to be able to worship when they pleased, how they pleased, when they pleased. And they had come to a wilderness, a harsh wilderness in the winter to carve out a better way of life. Not just for them, but for their children and their grandchildren and for us. Faith prompted the voyage. Faith sustained the pilgrims in these horrible circumstances. And it was their religious convictions that lifted them up to raise their voices in thanksgiving and praise. Not because of the horrible winter and the horrible ride over and the death of their friends and family, but because of what God was capable of doing in them, through them, and for their future generations. And with thanksgiving in their hearts, they raised their voice to the Lord. And they looked beyond their current hardship to the hope of the future held not by them, but by God. And so this is what we can learn from the pilgrims and from Paul and from the early church and from our Jewish ancestry, that we're going to move beyond the good or bad of what's happened in the last few hours, the last few days. So as your action step, if you want to learn how to live a thankful life, 
It looks like this. One, share your gratitude out loud and specifically. Certainly for those of you who have grandchildren or children with you, this is powerful for them to learn what it is to be thankful. If you're at a restaurant and a waiter or waitress fills up your glass with water, you say out loud in front of your children, thank you. You make eye contact, you recognize them as a human being, as someone who is serving you, who is making a wage, who is trying to better themselves, and you say thank you every time they fill your glass, every time they bring you a plate, every time they remove a plate from your table. You say thank you. Every time you order at McDonald's, you say thank you for the food. You thank God when you pray. You thank God for the people who made your food, who delivered your food, who cooked your food. If you're not the person who's making the meal at home, thank God for the person who made the food that night or who purchased the food or who brought it home. Uh, you know, you might have to thank God for Taco Bell. That's okay, but thank God for whatever it is. Thank God. Be people of gratitude in front of your children. Secondly, uh, this is very powerful. If you've never done this, I recommend it to you. It will absolutely change your life. Keep a gratitude journal. And I don't care if it's a journal. I don't care if it's a moleskin or it's pretty or any of that. You can use sticky notes for all I care. But here's the thing, right before your head hits the pillow, on a sticky note or a journal or whatever, write down three things that you're thankful for. And the most miraculous thing happens. If you'll write down, right before you fall asleep, three things that you're thankful for, you know what happens? More often than not, you wake up with those three things on your mind. Whatever you go to bed thinking is what you wake up thinking. That's why most therapists will, will warn you, please don't check your email before you go to bed. You'll be stressed out when you go to bed. You'll be stressed out when you wake up. So instead, write down three things that you're thankful for and let that soak into your soul overnight and wake up thankful. Wake up refreshed. Wake, wake up ready to enjoy the day because of what God has done. Keep a gratitude journal. Three, this is another option. Help the thank you note make a comeback. Seriously, thank you notes are awesome. You might also uh, you know, respond to RSVPs, but that's a different sermon. Um, but thank you notes are powerful 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 and have you all gotten a, a handwritten thank you note from someone you, you don't quickly forget it I mean, it's powerful for someone to take the time to honor you specifically to say thank you for this thing that you did for me or my family or for someone else thank you it makes a big difference fourth say thank you as often as possible and let your kids see it and five and this is this is one i just love set aside time now to be with your family and friends uninterrupted, where your phones are away, where you're not going to be distracted by work or something else. Uh, you can watch a movie, you know, check your cell phones before you go. Uh, you can take a walk um, with your whole family after the big Thanksgiving meal. You can walk it off. There's all sorts of things you can do, but it's important that we take time to do that because you know what you can't do? You can't be thankful in a hurry. Can you? You can't be thankful if you're on four calls at the same time. You can be frustrated. You can be miserable. You can be harassed. You can be helpless. You can be hopeless. But you can't be thankful if you're running at 90 miles an hour. So the Lord says stop. Every seventh day, stop. Rest and give thanks to me for all that I've given you. And be people of joy. Cake eaters who dance and sing with music. Amen. Amen. I hope you have a great, happy Thanksgiving. It is the great preacher holiday of the year, by the way. Christmas, I'm working. Easter, I'm working. Thanksgiving's mine. This is good. No, no responsibility. It's awesome. Looking forward to it.